Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have none other than somebody I've been really excited about interviewing, uh, Cody Keenan. What's going on? Hey, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. We, so we start each one of our episodes the same way, um, which is having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. So the obvious question for you is how does someone end up becoming um, the presidential's chief, the president's chief speechwriter? Walk us through your career arc from finishing the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard to being the president's speechwriter? Yeah, th- there's no one path to being a speechwriter, let alone chief speechwriter, uh, which is what makes it so fun. My arc actually began even before that. After I graduated college, I moved to Washington and was hunting for a job, which is difficult. You know, I didn't know anybody in town um, and uh, nobody, you know, you come in thinking you're a hotshot right out of college. You've seen every episode of the West Wing, like how hard can this be? Um the first job I got was an internship in Ted Kennedy's mailroom, uh, which ended up being one of the greatest educations I ever had. Just really learning the ins and outs of legislation, why it matters to people's lives. I gradually ended up writing a few speeches for him after four years, um, went to the Kennedy School. And then uh, a woman who mentored both me and John Favreau, who was President Obama's first chief speechwriter, connected the two of us in the early days of the 07 campaign. Um, he hired me as his intern. And then I just kind of stubbornly hung on for 14 years. <laughs> Somebody actually wanted to be with Fav for 14 years. Yeah, well, he, he eventually took off uh, at the beginning of the second term. He'd done his time because he was with um, Senator Obama in the Senate. And uh, then I succeeded for the second term and stayed with the president for four years after that. So we'll talk about the book at length in a minute, but I want to paint the picture for listeners about what it's like to write for a president who himself was a writer. Because the reality is very few politicians are actual writers who can constructively engage their speechwriters in detail as to what they want to say. Can you elaborate a bit on what it was like to write for someone who himself is an incredible writer? And we do know that he um, had a bit of that kind of like asshole legal writing instructor in him where he would get something and strike through it and scribble through it and strike through it and write his own thoughts. What is that process like? Yeah, it's writing for Barack Obama is a wonderful struggle. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, you, you, because he's a writer, because he's, he's so good at it, you kind of kill yourself to get that first draft just right, you know, cause you, you still want to impress him. That never goes away, but you also want to give him something he can work with. Um, and the great part of it is he, he can take it to a place that you can't reach a lot of the time. You know, he, he'll, if he's really into his speech, he'll sit and work on it late into the night and just his moral imagination will, will, you know, take it somewhere I'd never considered, but he's, He's got a healthy view of himself as a speechwriter. You know, he, he still reminds me to this day that he wrote the 04 speech himself. Um, I tell him every time, yes, sir, I know that was a great speech. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I like that comeback. Another question, and I just, I, I got to get this off at near the top of this interview. I've always wanted to understand, and you, you, talk about, you talk about it a bit in the book, but what's it like to write for a Black man and arguably the most consequential Black man in the history of our country, except for maybe Dr. King. This is audio, so people may not know that you're not Black. <laughs> and as far as I know, uh, the president's speechwriting team under Obama didn't have any Black speechwriters or many Black speechwriters. How did you and your team dial into that experience as a writer that wasn't quite from a lived experiences? And what speeches directed you to or directed to Black Americans did you feel added a layer of pressure and how did you manage that pressure? Yeah. I mean, it was important to me to be open about this in the book. Um, Like I said, you know, nothing made me feel whiter than writing for the first black president. (laughs) Uh, I was constantly aware of it, especially when we had to write about race, you know, Um, 
examples where, you know, after, after Trayvon was murdered, after the Trayvon verdict, the Selma speech, the Charleston speech, um, it's a real challenge, you know, to step back a little bit, probably the most important thing about speech writing beyond being able to string a sentence together is to have a sense of empathy, you know, to be able to put yourself in your audience's shoes and, and, and understand their lives. There's a limit to that. Um, you know, there's a limit to what you can really imagine uh, not having lived through. And, you know, I spent some time in the book, too, talking about how different President Obama and I are. You know, I'm, I'm a North Sider from Chicago, uh, Wrigleyville Cubs fan. He's a South Sider, Sox fan. But, you know, those two sides of Chicago are worlds apart in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, I didn't grow up the same way he grew up. You know, I didn't grow up going through what he went through. So we leaned on him a lot. Um, we talked to him before every speech and, you know, ultimately they're his words, not ours. So that was very helpful. Um, we tried to um, diversify the team to the extent that we could, you know, by the second term, we made it half women for a while. We hired a few writers of color. It's very, very difficult to find black speech writers. And I talked to the president. I actually, I asked him about it once. I said, were you ever upset or resentful that we didn't have any black speech writers? And he said, it's just hard, man. The system doesn't allow it. And what he meant by that is, you know, the way, sorry about the sirens in New York, um, you know, from, from internships up, right. Like my own career benefited from privilege because I had parents who could afford to send me to college and help me out when I was starting as an intern. Not everybody has that. Um, so it's just difficult, but there are a lot of good people out there now trying to, trying to change the odds. There's an organization called speech writers of color, um, you know, the speech writing company I work at now, Fenway, we're, we're proudly diverse and we can always get better. Um, but it's just kind of a long battle like in, like in any other field. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, one of the best pieces of oratory um, or the best speech that I've ever heard a politician give, and I hate to put the president in that box or 44 in that box, but on the trail was the speech on race in Philadelphia in 2008. Uh, I don't know who what I mean. And then you think about Charleston, where um, somebody told him it was a good idea to sing the amazing grace, which still brings me to tears. Um, how do those things, how do those moments come together uh, with you all sitting in there in the room or going back and forth or emailing? How do those moments come together? Yeah, well, you just picked two um, and there's a pattern here. You just picked two that the president tore in half and, and kind of rewrote half himself. Um, and that's why they're among the best. You know, like I said, he takes you to places you can't reach on your own. Those come together usually by, and the, you know, the speech in Philadelphia, I think was like a two day turnaround. Um, I wasn't involved with that one. Um, that was John Favreau and the president. 
And, but, but you spend a lot of time talking, you spend a lot of time emailing back and forth. Um, you spend a lot of time panicking at your computer and, uh, then you spend a lot of time working in his edits cause he'll go and, and really dig into it and work on it. Charleston, we had a couple more days. He didn't, you know, he didn't decide to, there were 10 days between the massacre and the memorial service. And he didn't, he didn't want to give a eulogy at first. He didn't want to speak. Um, and he finally changed his mind about halfway through those 10 days. So it was a little scramble. Plus we had all these speeches to write on pending decisions on Obamacare and marriage equality. So it was, it was chaotic, but so I, I had some time to talk with him, but not much. Um, and so that speech, you know, he, he just took, I gave him a four page draft the night before the speech. He just drew, drew one big line through pages three and four and he'd rewritten them longhand. Um, and that was the best stuff. As far as singing, nobody told him to do that. You know, nobody, nobody writes into the speech, sing here in all caps. He decided it himself and, and it, it had never even occurred to me, you know, to sing. He's obviously more steeped in the black church than I am and an AME tradition. <laughs> he felt, he felt comfortable there. Um, but he told but, us but that morning. I do want you to know that anytime AME bishops are out singing you, then, then you, you know, you got a ways to go on your, on your tune. Now it, it was one of the more memorable moments. I'll, I will remember that moment for the rest of my life. Um, I mean, and, and that just, that moment means so much to me personally. Let's talk about your new book, Grace. Uh, it's set to cover a 10-day period in the administration from June 17, 2015 to June 26, 2015. Why did you choose those 10 days as the subject? I mean, I feel like we know now, but why did you choose those 10 days? Yeah, sorry to jump ahead. The, uh, I mean, the the events that, that bookended and filled those 10 days are... Uh, more than what happens in a typical four-year administration. I mean, it's, it's, I saw someone write once that it was just too implausible for an entire season of West Wing. You know, it, they began in the worst possible way with that massacre in Charleston, um, where a white supremacist said he wanted to start a race war. Uh, at the same time, you know, we're, we're not sure whether or not the Supreme Court is going to punt millions of people off their health insurance or reaffirm that America has an obligation to help uh, working folks with their health care. We're not sure whether or not the Supreme Court will uh, find a right to marriage equality or tell gay Americans that they're second class citizens. Yeah. Um, you know, there's 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 suddenly passionate debate about the Confederate flag and even some Republican governors start bringing them down over public spaces in the South. The real turning point, though, was these families in Charleston who go into open court and forgive the killer, uh, which I was staggered by. Um, I could never imagine doing something like that. But, you know, as, as the president told me, that's AME tradition too. That's grace. That's grace. And, and you know, the president, when he did decide to give a eulogy, he said, um, that's what I want to talk about. And so, you know, the fact that all those incredible events, uh, both good and bad, happened in a 10-day span is coincidence, you know. But healthcare was a result of a 100-year movement by people who pushed for universal health care. Um, marriage equality was the result of a 50-year movement by people who pushed for, for equal rights. You know, we're still struggling with civil rights in this country. You see, finally seen a nascent um, gun reform movement kind of come out of the mass shootings during the Obama years. And yeah. so the book's really just kind of a microcosm of the country, this long 240-something-year battle um, between progress and backlash. You know, race is everywhere. Um, when you work for Barack Obama, and you allude to this desire in your book to, quote, walk a tightrope in the president's speech 
challenges, but you know as well as anyone that some folks, myself included, often didn't want the president to walk that tightrope. I was remember speaking to Axe, and Axe was saying that many times we didn't talk about the president's blackness because you could see it, and that was kind of the strategy um, going forward. Rhetorically, at least, um, we wanted to feel like he was more clearly with us instead of speaking to appeal people. Can you give the alternative perspective here that you detail in the book around how the White House speech writing team walked the tightrope and why you all felt like you needed to do so? Yeah, fortunately, we didn't have to make that decision. You know, we made sure this was the president's decision every time. Well, that's, it makes it a little easier. Uh, it made it a lot easier. You know, we, we, especially on race, we wouldn't, we wouldn't try to guide him anywhere. We would take, we'd take direction from him. Um, but you know, he learned lessons along the way. I mean, you know, after the, the Skip Gates incident in 09, right. Support from white Americans fell below 50% never recovered. Um, and you have to make these trade-offs between do I want to say what I really believe or do I want to win re-election so that I can actually deliver on the things I promised I'd deliver? And it's unsatisfying. I mean, a lot, that's another thing I talk about a lot in this book is all the trade-offs and compromises you have to make. It's none of it satisfying, but you ultimately kind of have to decide what's going to do the most good. Um, and and it's, it's not even fun to say that, you know, I don't feel good saying that. I, I remember I described a scene in the book after the Trayvon verdict where he was angry. And he he knew people wanted him to go out and show that anger. Um, and he ultimately decided it would be more important to do something about it, to come up with my brother's keeper, to offer some, you know, to, to, to show his true feelings on it, but not to just give in to what would have felt good. Um, and it's never satisfying. You know, a lot of a lot of governing is just not satisfying. Yeah, I mean, then you can kind of see and talk to him now and tell that he's actually getting satisfaction out of doing a lot of the things he he's doing now, being able to touch yeah. correctly without the confines of, of that, um, of the white house. Do you feel like walking a tight rope led to missed opportunities for the president in retrospect? I know it was his decision to make, and I am going to send this interview to Eric Schultz. So he's, he's going to listen to what you say <laughs> in your opinion. Was it a missed opportunity? I don't know. I, you know, I don't know how to prove that. Um, I think in, in some of his more important speeches, like, like Charleston, he got pretty honest. Um, he never wanted to miss those opportunities, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, if I'm capable or even allowed to decide what he should have done. Um, and you can see, you can think this about anything, healthcare, climate, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. I always would have loved to go bigger earlier. Um, but there's no guarantee you get anything done at all. I mean, like you think about healthcare, right? Ron was trying to tell him, just go small, take a compromise. And he was the one who went big and said, no, I'm taking this. Um, Rom didn't, and it still doesn't Rom, Rom didn't say that. Rom said, Rom said, you need to fucking go big motherfucker. That's what, that's the way Rom probably said that. <laughs> <laughs> with, all, with all the fucking MFers possible, you need to, you need to go small and take what they'll give you. Uh, how, how is it? I mean, just speech writing in general, how is it putting yourself in someone else's shoes, having to kind of tell that story? There are a lot of people listening who probably think they're good writers, but you literally every single day have to put yourself in other people's shoes. Is there ever a time where you wrote something or wrote on a topic that you didn't, that you didn't want to, or issues you didn't want to talk about or things you disagreed with? I've been lucky that it's very, very rare. 
um, the president and I didn't really deviate on anything. And now I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I can be choosy about who I write for. Yeah. <laughs> there, there were times when I actually wished we would have gone bigger. You know, in the first term, I wish <clears throat> he would have come out for marriage equality. I wish we would have gone bigger on climate change. You know, on race, you can tell I struggle, right? I don't know what I'm allowed to decide um, or push on. I mean, as a speechwriters, we were all, you know, pretty far left and young, and we wanted to go up to the rooftop of the White House and yell right and wrong. You know, we knew what was right and what was wrong. And Again, it's those trade-offs you have to make because you you do have to, he does have to talk to everybody. Um, and it's really, really difficult. I mean, one of the most gratifying things I've ever read was when ta Coates wrote that for eight years, Barack Obama walked on ice and never fell. I mean, was he the, was the one. Fact. Yeah, he Obama was the one who had to feel all this pressure, not us. Um, and he he pulled it off, you know, as best he could. And not only that, but in the second term where you were there, you know, it, you, you, you couldn't even recapture the lightning. Barack Obama in 2012 couldn't recapture the lightning in a bottle that he found in 2008. It was just impossible. That 2008 thing was just, it was just different. Don't you agree? Totally, man. It, I mean, I was on that campaign. I joined in 07. It felt like magic, but I also don't want people to forget, you know, we were down 40 points to Hillary in Iowa in September of 07. It was, it was never easy. And, you know, spring, going through those primaries in 08, that was bad. Um, but yeah, and I think that's true of most politicians. You know, campaigning is great. Campaigning is super fun. It's all vision. You've got a foil to run against. Governing is just tough. It's all on you now, right? Financial crisis or not, pandemic or not. Uh, it's all on people, you. You got to work with 100 people who think they can all be president of the United States, which yeah. in itself is, is difficult. Um, who, who's the intended audience for this book? Um, and when people finish it, what do you want to take from it? By the way, I think it's an awesome, awesome, awesome book. I don't, I, I was, I didn't know if speechwriters could actually write a book, but you pulled that off. I didn't either. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a great question that nobody's asked me yet. You know, it's, it's the audience that hasn't really gotten into politics yet. Right. I mean, if, if there are, you know, people who loved Barack Obama, people who love reading these books um, are going to love this book, but it's for, it's for my daughter, you know, it's for young people now. She's only two. Uh, it's for young people now who are thinking about getting into public service and politics. I want, I want them to believe that this matters. I want people to know what America's capable of, even if it was just seven years ago. Um, I want people to believe again. And, you know, we can do really extraordinary things in, in this long battle of progress versus backlash, right? The side that that outworks the other generally wins. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. How much of the book did you discuss with 44 beforehand? Are there stories where you think he'll be surprised at what you write? And were you ever concerned that you were giving readers too much of how the sausage was being made in the White House of the 44th president? I always worried about that. I I didn't want to give away too much. I didn't want to give away too many personal details, especially because he hasn't written about this time period yet in in the second volume of his memoirs. Yeah, I mean, he only gave us 700 pages in the first one. I mean, I'm, but go ahead. Mine is only 28% as long. (laughs) Um, I, but he's read it. I gave him a copy back in spring, um, uh, while we were copy editing. So there's nothing in there that, that, uh, he took offense to or, uh, issue with rather. Um, I won't give you his review other than to say that it was, I was very, very happy with it. Um, but I made sure he read the book. I made sure, you know, I wanted it to be true to him. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted his take on some of these things that we've been talking about, you know, some of the, the challenges and, and trade-offs we had to make. And so um, he likes it, uh, which is all I'll say. This may actually be a trick question, but as the president's speechwriter, you saw him personally grapple with the white supremacist response to him, right? And you saw the Tea Party um, to the radicalism of, of Dylan Roof and what ultimately became Donald Trump's America. Was Donald Trump something you saw percolating from your perch in the White House? Um, Did you ever imagine that that would be the result, that white lash, as Van Jones calls it, or that complete 180 from what Barack Obama is? You know, the answer is no. I didn't predict it. Um, I, I don't think I dismissed him out of hand either. I mean, you know, at first we thought he was just kind of a carnival barker. That's why the president went after him in the 20, 2011 correspondence dinner, um, which I'm not sorry about. Um, but you always, we were always aware, you know, I say this in the book too, we weren't naive. It's like, oh, great. We just won all these battles and it's going to be just progress is going to win out forever. We knew there'd be a backlash. We, we, But if you'd have asked me in 2016, if Donald Trump was going to be president, I probably wouldn't have bought it. Um, you know who saw something like it coming, whether it was Trump or not, was the president. Early in 2016, he told me he wanted to make the State of the Union address, his final State of the Union address, um, sort of a speech about the state of democracy, you know, and what we need to do to maintain democracy. He focused his commencement addresses that year on that. He focused his UN General Assembly address on that around the world. His farewell address was all about it. He saw the threats to democracy coming, um, and Trump was just its just its first avatar. I remember January 19th or 20th we were in that big convention center what's it called in, in chicago i can't recall the name of it but that McCormick. was a mccormick that's right it was huge i was um, sitting to the left of the stage when he gave a speech for cnn it was one of the most magnificent speeches that he gave during his tenure so good job on that one too um cody talk tell people where they can buy the book when it's on sale and all those good things the most important question i have to ask you uh, CodyKeenan.com will have all the links you need. It also has all of our tour stops. There's going to be a bunch of, we're going on, I'm going on a big three week tour with a bunch of guests in a bunch of cities, but, uh, ideally it's going to be at your favorite bookstore. If it's not, it'll be at CodyKeenan.com.
Sounds good. All right, my brother. Thank you so much for joining Bakari Sellers podcast. The book is awesome. Um, you're awesome. Um, I look forward to what you do in the future. Bakari, thanks, man. I really appreciate it.